Good morning. It is good uh, to see you again in this way. Um, right now you look like, you know, a little webcam sitting on top of my computer. But uh, I know that you're there and we are together and this is church. And so I continue to be grateful for the ways in which technology allows us to connect and the ways in which we can still uh, do church and be church. I keep on... Um, thinking or talking or having to be careful in myself not to not to think in terms of, oh, it will be good when we can uh, be church again or when we can go to church again or when we can finally um, be together and do church for real. Uh, of course, that will be good. And I do look forward to the days when we can gather together uh, in person as we used to. I, I, uh, I long for that. Um, I'm very, very excited about the possibility of that happening and, uh, and, and uh, look forward to that um, in a huge way. But uh, this is church. Uh, for now, this is church. And it is no less real uh, and it is no less good in a spiritual way um, than what we've done before. God can work in the same way through this. He is honored in the same way through this. Uh, our worship has the same value in this context. And so, welcome to church. It is good to be together with you. As you know, we've been going through a uh, Promises of God series. Uh, for most of the time, we've been um, sort of on Facebook doing these uh, these live streams. And uh, so we've had a chance to go through several of these promises already. It's kind of been a series where we've been bouncing around in the Old Testament, taking a look at the different things that God has to say to us uh, through what he has said to people in the past, uh, what what uh, the promises of God to uh, these different people in the Old Testament says, uh, not only about what God was going to do for them, but also what that reveals about the character of God and who God is for us and the ways in which um, those truths apply to our lives today. And it's been a great series. It's been hugely encouraging for me. I've enjoyed the opportunity to dig into um, the different promises as I've been able to speak. I've enjoyed listening to Darren speak as well as he's uh, uh, dug into a few. And so I just wanted to start off again by just giving you a quick sort of recap of, uh, of what we've talked about already. So, so we started off by looking at Gideon and we saw that God promises to give us uh, strength and help when we can't do it on our own. Gideon was a guy who didn't feel like he measured up, didn't feel like he was able to do it. And God says, I will be there with you. Uh, I am the one who's going to get this done through you. We looked at Noah and we saw a God that promises to save us and to protect us. A God that um, uh, destroyed the world through a flood and afterwards promised and said that will never happen again. Uh, I am a God that is going to save and work with his people. Um, and, uh, and that promise, uh, of course, is a valuable thing to us uh, in the midst of this COVID crisis to recognize that we have a God who has promised to, um, to save us and to be with us uh, in, in times of crisis. We looked at Abraham and saw God promising through his actions uh, as he entered into this covenant with Abraham that not only would he be looking after his side of the covenant, he actually takes responsibility for ours as well. It's an incredible promise of God stepping in and carrying us. It's it's really, it's the gospel presented to us, uh, you know, only 12 chapters uh, into Genesis, we already see uh, the gospel. We already see uh, this plan that, that God had through Jesus 
uh, begin to take shape in that early place. Uh, we looked at Joshua, and Darren broke it down very well, this idea that in the unknown, in fear of the unknown, we have a God that walks before us, and in fear of the known, uh, we have a God that is with us, that walks beside us, and and carries us, and stays with us, and is real to us in those times. And then last week we took a look at Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah 29, 11, this verse that talks about the plans that God has for us. And we saw there as we dug into that chapter uh, and the context around that chapter or around that verse that while God does have plans for us and, and he does want to prosper us and not to harm us, and he does want to give us a hope and a future, that is a bigger promise than sometimes we give God credit for, that God has a big view of time, uh, of the way that he is going to lay out this promise, that God has a big view of prosperity, of what it means to prosper us, a much larger view than we sometimes has, have of what prosperity means. And then he's got a big view of you, of us. He's thinking of more than just you or me when he talks about those things. So that was an encouragement as well. Um, as we continue uh, this series, uh, we're going to be looking at Solomon today. So specifically what we're going to be looking at is the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a bit of a strange place, maybe, to look for another promise of God. But what this happened to be, what this turned into, is it turned into maybe a bit of a companion piece in some ways, uh, or something that expands on uh, what we talked about in Jeremiah last week. And it also touches on some of the themes that we've covered in, in other sermons. These promises have some similarities. They approach things from different angles, but it really does help to have a picture of what's come before in order to engage with and dive into these things because we begin to see the layers of promise that God has for us. So I encourage you, if you've missed out on previous sermons, we do have all of them available on our Facebook Live or on our Facebook page. The live videos have stayed up and they're available previous sermons and we're still releasing the sermon audio in podcast form and posting it on our website. So if you've missed uh, previous sermons, in this series, feel free to check them out there. I want to encourage you to stay up to date because I feel like these become greater than uh, the sum of their parts, that these are things that add together into a bigger story of what God's promise is for us. Today, though, let's uh, dig into Solomon. So Solomon, of course, was the third king in Israel. Uh, he is the son of David, and this man lived a bigger and 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 uh, better life than just about anybody else that came before or after. I I remember it kind of reminds me of when I was young that there'd be a variety of video games that I used to play. One of them was, uh, I was a little bit older by then already, but one of them was The Sims. Uh, but there are lots of these games where what you do is you have the opportunity before you start playing the game to build a character and you have a certain number of points to assign to the various characteristics of that character. So so things like wisdom or luck or charisma or or good looks or uh, different sorts of person, you know, strength, things uh, in their personality that you could contribute points towards and that would affect how they played and how they how what what they came across in the game. And and you never got enough points to make them good at everything. If you spread it out equally, they'd be kind of mediocre at every single thing, or you could choose to make them really good at some things and really weak at other things. But it was always this balancing act of trying to understand how you could make a character that 
was going to be successful in this game. And with Solomon, it feels a little bit like someone found a cheat code and just gave him max points and everything. The guy was um, <clears throat> wise, right? God gave him the gift of wisdom, and he's known as the wisest man who ever lived. And he was also, of course, one of the wealthiest men to ever live. So there was an article that came out just this last week, I think, about Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, and he's worth $160 billion or something. And they were talking about how if the trajectory of Amazon's growth, which of course has been doing very well over this time, continues uh, over a number of years, then possibly by 2030 or something, he may be the world's first ever trillionaire that Jeff Bezos might be. Well, Solomon, you know, people have crunched the numbers and played around and and uh, people figure that Solomon, by today's standards, was worth about $3 trillion at that time. So, so uh, dozens of times wealthier than Jeff Bezos or anybody else on earth. Uh, there's a verse in 1 Kings that says that during Solomon's time, gold and silver were as common as stones on the ground. Um, and so incredible wealth. And then he had, you know, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it's just, you can't even really fathom what that would, what that would be like. Sort of the logistics of that kind of already blow my mind a little bit. But uh, it's also maybe enough to make you question his wisdom a little bit. Uh, but the point is, is that the man lived a big life. There is nobody uh, in history who maybe has lived such a large life, who has had the breadth of experience and pleasures uh, and certainly wisdom uh, as Solomon. There is nobody who has done as much under the sun as Solomon has. And so then it's a little bit disconcerting or a little bit uncomfortable or maybe surprising when we read Ecclesiastes. It's a bit of a slap in the face to us because here is a man who had everything you could dream to have and not only did he have everything he had the wisdom to understand it he he got it he understood the value of what he had he understood how it how it worked in society he understood kind of the the incredible luck or the incredible fortune that he had he deeply got it and yet he's looking at his own life and the summation, we find it in the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, this is how it begins. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. I love this book. Especially in the midst of this pandemic, especially in the midst of what we're struggling through, uh, not just as a church, but as a community, as a country, uh, throughout the entire world. I love Ecclesiastes. To me, this book is a drink of cool water, in a desert, it's refreshing and it's thirst quenching and it's wonderful. And and some of you are looking at me uh, like I'm crazy when I say that. But here's uh, what I love about it. One of the things that I love, we'll talk more about others as we go on. But I love that. I'm so grateful that there is this book in the Bible that directly engages with the disconnect between how we feel the world should be and how it actually is. That what we believe about Christians as reality, 
what we believe is true doesn't always line up with our lived experience. That there is this chasm, there is a space between how it is and how it should be. And what Ecclesiastes does is it dives into that chasm uh, without a parachute. It, it doesn't pretend that everything is fine. It acknowledges that disconnect. It doesn't scold us for feeling lost or confused. It goes, you're right. It's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's the kid in the parade shouting that the emperor has no clothes. Uh, and depending on where you're at, for some of you, that's going to be deeply disconcerting or abrasive. And for some of you, it's going to be a release valve on the pressure cooker of life. It's going to be like a deep tissue massage. Maybe it hurts a little bit, but it's working out knots in your spiritual life that you have. Um, it's, it's a healing thing to hear, to recognize that a guy like Solomon wrestled through those same feelings about how life just doesn't line up sometimes. Before we jump into the book, uh, there are a few things that I want to highlight uh, just in order to help us to understand this a little bit better, to help us to get the context of the situation of the book, um, make sure that we understand what was being talked about here properly. So the first uh, question is actually an interesting one, uh, and it's who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes? And I can't see any of you, um, but... I'm going to assume that most of you are are thinking, if not saying out loud, that Solomon is the book of uh, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's incorrect. Uh, if you take a look at chapter one, verse one, it starts out: "The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless," says the teacher. So, it's Solomon speaking. Solomon, the, the son of David, we believe is the one who is, who is talking here, but he's not the author of the book. There is somebody who is uh, introducing Solomon as this teacher, and it's even more clear at the end of the book. Uh, in chapter 12, in verse 9, we see this author sort of step in to give a bit of a, an epilogue to this, to give a bit of a commentary on what's been said. He takes time to summarize or to explain all this stuff that came before. He says, not only was this teacher that you've been hearing from for the last 11 and a half chapters, not only was this teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. And he continues, we'll get into that a little bit later. But the way that I like to think about this, I've heard it talked about this way. It's kind of like a, a grandpa on his porch talking to his grandson and saying, I'm going to tell you a story about how the world works. I'm going to talk about a king that lived, you know, long ago and was very wise. Here are the things that he said. I'm going to talk to you about this. And at the end, he's going to say, so that's what that king had to say. And now I want to make sure that you didn't miss the point. Here's what all of that is really getting at or really driving at. So the author here isn't Solomon. It's, it's an anonymous writer. We don't know who it was, but who is compiling the thoughts or the proverbs of this teacher, who's sort of taking on the voice of this teacher and so what this does for us as we read the book of Ecclesiastes is that we see this author presenting a story that requires this commentary. He's saying, here's a thought experiment. Here's a story about how life would be, what life would feel like, what it would seem like if we ignored God. If we sort of take God out of the picture, what becomes of life? Here's a, a specific viewpoint or way of thinking about things 
And then at the end, taking an opportunity to unpack it a little bit and go, okay, so here's what that really means. Here's what we're really talking about in this sort of story or in this proverb or in the wisdom of this king that we have set up. So that's the first thing that we need to understand. This, the, the second thing that we need to understand is, is, the, is the definition of some of these words that are used. There's one in specific that's used over and over again. And in order to get Ecclesiastes, we had better know what the author is getting at when they're using this word, because your translations are going to vary. Most of them, many of them say meaningless is this word that comes up. Some of them are going to say vanity. That's the King James Version. Uh, This sort of vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is how the King James Version starts out. But the nature of translation from one language to another means that it's almost never a perfect one-to-one. It's not true that there was a Hebrew word that directly and perfectly translates into an English word. And so especially when a word becomes so important, it's a very good thing to do a bit of a dive and go, okay, what did this word really mean? What are the nuances of this thing? So the original word here is a Hebrew word that is hevel. Hevel. And, and the word boiled down to its most basic meaning is, is like smoke or vapor. And so there are two significant ways in which hevel, smoke or vapor, applies in the context of Ecclesiastes. There are two significant ways that it was used in that time, and both of them really inform or teach us about what the author was getting at with this word that gets repeated, uh, I think, over 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So to illustrate, uh, what I'm going to try and do is uh, generate a little bit of smoke here. We'll see if this works. Um, so here, I've got a candle. No, blow it out, and there's smoke. It's hevel. It's hevel. It's here, and then it's gone. That's the first sort of definition of hevel, is that there was smoke, and then very quickly it just disappears, right? Where does it go? It's hard to say. It just kind of vanishes into thin air. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's not like it collects up by my ceiling. It's just gone. It's hevel. Um, Ecclesiastes 11 verse 8 says, uh, How many years uh, anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is hevel, is meaningless. It's here and then it's gone. It's not even just like you're alive and then you're dead, but there's these days of darkness. There's things that don't make sense. Um, you can't hold on to it. It's, it's a good, good times are impermanent. They come and they go and who knows where or why they come and go. It's like chasing the wind. I've got another candle here. Any bets on how many candles I have uh, sitting down beside me here? We're going to see how this uh, goes. This is, here's hevel. So it's hevel. It's, it's, it's there. It's, it's going, it's going, it's going, and it's kind of, it just, it's gone. It doesn't really stick around. It just disappears, kind of wafts away into nothingness. And so that's an example that smoke or vapor is what we're thinking about when we think about the concept of this meaningless, this word hevel is smoke or vapor. So the other way, uh, well, maybe I'll just expand a little bit more on that. You know, the, the, there's, a, there's a point in Ecclesiastes where the teacher says, you know, somebody is wealthy and then they die. That's hevel. Somebody has a family. They'll have a hundred kids. They live for a hundred years. Who cares? They die. It's hevel. It, it goes away. It's all impermanent. It's hevel. Uh, the other way of thinking about the word is not just that it's impermanent, that it's here and then it's gone, but that it's an enigma or that it's a paradox. It's, it's impossible to understand. So smoke, is smoke real? Does this exist? It's, it's here. It's here right now. But if I try and grab it, there, there's nothing. There's no, I have no ability to touch it. It's not, 
It's not anything that's physical in that I can grab it. So does it exist? Is it a thing? Well, of course it is. It's, it's here. But when I try and grab it, uh, it's, it, it's gone. I can't, I can't grab onto it. I can't hold onto this smoke. It's, it's heaven. It's, it's something that I can't understand. I can kind of see it. I see that it's there. But if I ever try and actually make it solid, if I ever try and rely on it in any kind of way, it just wisps away. It's nothing. Smoke seems solid, but it isn't real. It's, it's right there, but it's not there at all. So Ecclesiastes 8.14 kind of grabs onto this idea. It says, here's something else, hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is hevel. It doesn't add up. It's, it's a paradox. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. As soon as you've got it figured out, you don't have it figured out. And in fact, the surest way to know that you don't have it figured out is when you feel like you have it figured out. Then you know for sure that you don't have it figured out. It's hevel. It's impossible to pin down or to understand. It's, it's, it's impossible to grab onto. So what I want to do is show you a quick video uh, to represent this. You can feel free to play along at home if you want. Gather your kids. This is kind of a fun thing to do. There is a photorealistic artist on, on YouTube who comes out with these videos from time to time. And what he does is he draws a series of things um, like uh, Coke cans or fast food items or whatever. And he sets it up in such a way that you have to guess which is the drawn one and which is the real one. So play along at home. Uh, feel free to post it in the chat uh, which one you think is real or whether you get it right or wrong as they go. They'll go by pretty quick, but we'll do a couple of these and then we'll get back to the sermon. Okay, so I think that does a great job of demonstrating uh, maybe the key reason why meaningless isn't quite the right word. It's not actually that life has no meaning. It's not that there is nothing real. Um, it's more that we as humans have no ability to figure it out. Everything is, I've got another one, it's heaven, it's smoke, it's vapor. Um, it's, something that, it's something that we can't ever properly grab onto or grasp clearly. Reality is there, meaning is there somewhere, but we don't have the ability to get it. It feels like it's constantly shifting or unattainable or, or impossible to hold. It's heaven. So there is a second phrase here that's used almost as much. Uh, Hevel shows up about 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. The second phrase shows up about 30 times. It's the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. And, and that's where this thought experiment I talked, I talked about kind of comes into play. It sort of snaps things into focus in an important way because what under the sun does is it defines this main thought experiment of Ecclesiastes. What is the meaning that we can figure out, that we can grasp or attain or hold under the sun. Everything under the sun. If under the sun is all we have, Ecclesiastes tells us, then it's... then it's heaven. Then it's smoke. If we live life purely based on what we can see and feel and hear and smell, and touch, then, 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 then good things can happen. You can have a good meal, you can find a good spouse, you can find fulfillment in your work, Ecclesiastes says, but in the end, it's all heaven, it's smoke. And Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book because in many ways it feels like it directly opposes what we've read elsewhere in the Bible, specifically uh, in other wisdom books, uh, like books like Proverbs and Job. These books, the three of them, these three wisdom books in the Bible, 
seem to disagree and argue and fight with each other sometimes. Uh, and what I've heard it said uh, is that you need to think of these three books as three philosophers, three God-fearing philosophers who all have different temperaments or different personalities or slightly different viewpoints on life who walk into a bar and hash things out. They get into this sort of friendly dialogue or conversation or, or, or uh, debate and, and they're in conversation with each other and somewhere in the midst of the three of those talking with each other is truth. These are all sort of approaching truth or a piece of truth from different angles and, and somewhere in the midst of that is what truth really is. So Proverbs is a book, you know, Proverbs 3 verse 5 to 8, for example, is a beautiful verse. It's, it's a memory verse for many people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So it sounds like a good deal. If I fear the Lord... And if I shun evil, I will have a healthy body and strong bones. Great. If I do the right things, things are going to turn out well for me. But the book of Proverbs is the book of Proverbs. It's not the book of promises. It's an observation on how things generally work out. Speaking truth about how things tend to go. So who is more likely to have a good life? The hardworking man of integrity who treats people well? Or the lazy, cheating, lying man? Well, the good man is more likely to have a good life. That's often how things work. But is that how it always works? Is it? It isn't. That's heaven. Or here's a fun example with the three books. So Proverbs 13 verse 9 says this. It says, The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. And then later it kind of echoes it in uh, chapter 24, verse 20. It says, For the evildoer has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. And then we see Job come in. Job 21, verse 17 says, Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fake God lots in his anger. And Ecclesiastes comes in to try and answer that question. And he says, in this hevel, I got one more candle. In this hevel life, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. It's smoke. It's impossible to find meaning under the sun. So the question becomes, does that mean does that all add up to there being no meaning let's turn to chapter 12 for some help from grandpa on this we can start uh, at verse 8 here chapter 12 verse 8 we'll finish off the teachers saying he start he ends it the way he starts it he says hevel hevel says the teacher everything is meaningless hevel and now grandpa comes in to help us understand what's going on here so grandpa says this author, sort of explaining things to his son, says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So the author is saying 
this book, Ecclesiastes, these words that we've just read uh, are like the sticks that shepherds would use. It's a, a long stick with nails hammered into the end that they would use to poke or prod or redirect their sheep to the right direction. So it's something in our case that we must not ignore because it hurts or it's uncomfortable. The wrestling of Solomon here is something that has the ability for the shepherd, for God, to use to drive us in the right direction. It might hurt to engage with. It might focus or it might force us to drop some of our previously held beliefs. If we've been going to the Proverbs, if we've been going to Jeremiah 29, 11 or verses like it and treating them as, as surefire predictions for how to have a happy, easy, meaningful, perfect life under the sun. If our worship of our relationship with God has purely been based on our own benefit, on what it is that we're getting out of it, on what's in it for us, on the idea that if we do the right things for God in the right order at the right times, then we're somehow going to be perfectly blessed and that the relationship is this transactional thing where we believe that God owes us for what we're doing for him. Then this sort of thing provides, Ecclesiastes provides a much needed course correction. It hurts, but it starts to get us where we need to go. Uh, there's a quote that I have in my notes. I didn't get the author of this, but, uh, but, but he talks about Ecclesiastes in this way. He says that the author of Ecclesiastes is, is a sort of negative theologian. That is, he's making an argument by what isn't true. And he's asking questions that can only be answered by a future revelation of God. And clearing the road for this revelation smashes any and all false hopes to pieces. So Ecclesiastes is about smashing our false hope. Uh, but this is what he says. I love this line. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's night before Christmas. Ecclesiastes is humans' self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. And so where do we go from here? How do we get out of the smoke? How do we find meaning in a world where everything under the sun is heaven, is meaningless? First, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us where we won't find meaning. He says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of these Proverbs. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. So we aren't going to figure it out by just trying harder, by researching more, by digging deeper, by putting more human sweat into the equation. Let's not become so obsessed with trying to figure out what is this hevel all about and, and what's really going on here that we drown ourselves in the pursuit of knowledge or wisdom or we devote ourselves to trying to clear away this smoke or this vapor and make sense of things ourselves. That's why it's so powerful that Solomon is the writer of this book, or rather Solomon is the, the voice of the teacher in this book. If there was anyone under the sun who could have figured it out, who by virtue of his wisdom or his life experience or his worldly knowledge or his cultural awareness or his resources could have gotten to a place where, where he understood the meaning, where he pierced through the hevel and got it, it would have been Solomon. But he comes up dry. And instead the author tells us this. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For, and here's the promise, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So in the little bit of time that we have left, 
Let's talk about judgment in the context of Hevel. Judgment, of course, is a bit of an uncomfortable word. We don't talk about judgment very often anymore. God's judgment, for many, it's viewed as a, as a negative or stressful thing, something to be afraid of, something to avoid or put off, something that might hurt. And certainly, uh, when you look at the promises that we've covered so far, promises of grace and protection and, and promises to save and to help and to hold and to walk with and to go ahead of, judgment feels a little bit like the odd one out here. It feels harsh in comparison to those promises to help and to hold. Um, but this is what Ecclesiastes does so, so well. Under the sun, here on earth, limited by our senses, our perspectives, our humanness, everything is hevel. It's all smoke. The wicked prosper, the good die, even the best life ends in death. Even the best day comes with a worse tomorrow. Nothing is certain and nothing makes sense. Under the sun, everything is meaningless and we're lost. And we steep in this, we rest in this for 11 and a half chapters. And after sitting in this place of discomfort, of wrestling with how things are not as they should be, how we desperately need somebody to sort this stuff out for us, the promise of God in chapter 12 is to judge and to distinguish for us what is good and what is evil, to expose every hidden thing. It's like the sun rising in the morning and burning away the fog. It's, it's allowing us to truly, for the first time, see things as they are, to grasp meaning. So Darren uh, had two great stories a few weeks ago when he talked about uh, God going before us in his sermon on Joshua that apply well here to the story about following behind a snowmobiler. Um, in, in sort of snowy conditions and, and being able to focus on those taillights. A story about trail riding horses waiting for the older seasoned horse to go over the bridge before the others would follow. There are so many examples of this sort of thing in our lives. It's something that many of us are familiar with. All of us have had to take time to trust, or all of us have had times where we've had to trust someone else. It happens daily with our boys. Uh, and depending on the day, our boys do a better or worse job of trusting. But there is so much that they simply don't understand about the way the world works. And when we enforce rules, or when we introduce new foods to them, or when we have to give them a medicine of some kind, or when we restrict or limit them in some sort of a way in order to protect them, or in order to teach them the way that life is, um, that's all this sort of trust, right? I still remember when Sebastian was two, and broke his foot, uh, and, and, and just trying to put myself in the headspace of a kid that is getting a cast. You know, no concept of, of what it means to have a broken bone, doesn't even really know what a bone is in the first place, not really understanding why this is necessary or how it helps. And yet all the way through, during the proking and the prodding and the, and the x-raying and the, and the putting on of the cast, all this foreign stuff that wouldn't have made any sense to him, he trusted us. When we said this is what needed to happen, he trusted and that's a concept that all of us can identify with in one way or another, having to take that leap of faith to trust, having to agree to follow something or someone, uh, not because we have all the information that we fully understand, or even that we want to do the thing, but just because we trust that the person who's making the decision has our best interests in mind. We trust that they have a better view of the situation than we do, that they can see more or understand more than we do about what's really going on, about what's best for us. This pandemic that we're in the middle of has brought out the best and the worst uh, of humanity. There have been extreme reactions in every direction, and nobody under the sun uh, really knows, right? Nobody has 
the perfect answer about how we're supposed to behave, about how long this is going to last, about what's going on, about how these transitions are going to take place. All of us are trying to muddle our way through a foggy and chaotic situation. The world has been handcuffed by something completely out of its control. And the reactions that we're seeing show that our world is not well equipped to deal with chaos. We desperately want to believe, and sometimes with our modern technology and medical and scientific advances, we can begin to trick ourselves into believing for a little bit that we generally have things under control, that we basically have life figured out, that we know how to be healthy, that we know how to be economically stable, how to be good to our neighbors, how to plan for success. And during good times, for a while, that can almost begin to feel real and stable. And then something like COVID-19 comes along and reminds us, Hevel, Hevel, it's smoke. It doesn't make sense. We don't have it under control. Under the sun, everything in the end is temporary. It's constantly changing. It's not something that we can grasp or hold on to. And so when we sit in these times, when we live in this place where Solomon is, when based on what we see around us, nothing makes sense. This is the promise that we have. We have a God who is the perfect and gracious and all-knowing judge who can divide for us what is good and what is evil, who can reveal for us what is hidden, who can blow away the smoke and say, look, here are things as they really are. And that's why I love Ecclesiastes, because it gives voice and language and legitimacy to the way that we all feel sometimes. It gives us permission to wrestle with and grapple with the ways in which life doesn't seem to add up. The ways in which what we see around us doesn't mesh or connect with what we believe to be true. And then over all of that, over top of the fog, over top of the smoke or vapor, it says we have a God who understands. Who understands our hearts and how we feel, but more than that, who sits above us, who is over the sun who reigns and discerns and who judges all and who sees through the fog and who goes before us. Everything under the sun is heaven, but we worship a bigger than God who is making a way through it. And so in a foggy world, we fear God, we keep his commandments, and we follow the perfect judge who is leading us through that fog and promises one day to clear it away for good. Amen.